So yeah, we are beginning a series. We're, at this point, we're only going to do the first three chapters of Revelation. As I was studying and reading uh, in preparation for this message, a thought did cross my mind. We could just say, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and just keep going. Um, and just go through the whole book of Revelation. But we'll wait to see if the Lord directs me to do that. I, I, if we do that, then we'll be postponing the Gospel of John for a little while longer because we, we will be in Revelation for a while if we do that. So uh, just be praying the Lord leads me. I mean, look, it's the, his word from cover to cover. And so my intention was to only cover the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. But um, we may just go ahead and go through Revelation through the whole book. But we'll see. If not, then we'll jump into the Gospel of John at the beginning of next year. So we are calling this series Golden Lampstands. And if you have never studied Revelation, you may not understand what a, why we're talking about golden lampstands. That may seem really strange to you, but you will understand uh, as we get into uh, this first chapter of Revelation. And so we're going to go through this series in about eight weeks. I have an introductory message this morning, and then we're going to look at each letter to each church that is uh, uh, written to in the first three chapters, first, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so we're going to dive into this. This is, uh, anytime you go through the book of, of Revelation in any section, uh, you know, it's kind of like some of the hard sayings of the Apostle Paul. You go through some of his letters and there's some difficult sayings to understand. Revelation exceeds that. And so chapter 1, 2, and 3 is kind of the, the easier uh, section to kind of go through and to see and to understand and to, and, to, and to apply. And so, but we still need God's help. We need help to be able to understand it, to, com- to, to comprehend it, and to apply it to our life, but also to our church. So would you go before me and go with me before the Lord in prayer as we ask him for help as we unpack this section. God, we, we need your help. God, we, we need your help to be able to understand what it is what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to this church. Lord, we want to hear your word. And God, as we go through the next seven weeks, eight weeks of this series, and we're going to read letters to churches uh, throughout uh, Asia, throughout uh, the, the time of the first century church, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would hear what you would say to our church and what you would want to do in our life. And God, I pray that we would be ready to hear and that we receive your truth with a glad heart. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm titled the message this morning, The One Who Stands With Us. The One Who Stands With Us. And if you, if you have notes there, you see the outline there. I want to encourage you that if you don't have notes, we print them out every Sunday. You can go and get the notes and, uh, at the, the front desk. They, the, the, the ushers and greeters should hand them out to you. If you don't get them, you can go to the front desk at the welcome desk and they can give you those notes. So The One Who Stands With Us. And what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at Revelation 1 verses 9 through 20. And in the middle of verses 9 through 20, we're going to unpack a section there. And we're going to look at the Lord of the church, which is Jesus. We're going to look at this beginning of the revelation that God gives to the Apostle John. The late Winston Churchill once described the Soviet Union as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. A mystery a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. And for many Christians, that's the book of Revelation. It is a riddle 
wrapped in a mystery, right? It's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend what actually is going on in here. And so some people believe that, that everything that is written here has already been fulfilled. Some people believe that what is written here uh, will be fulfilled in the future. But some people uh, think differently about the timing of how it will all be fulfilled in the future. And so there's many different views and viewpoints about what is written here in the book of Revelation. But one thing we know for sure from reading the text and reading the book of Revelation, it is a prophecy. It is, it is a vision that God gives the Apostle John. And he calls it Revelation. The beginning of the book calls it Revelation. And Revelation comes from the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, which is translated as meaning unveiling. So when you're looking at the book of Revelation, you have to understand what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. And if you don't understand the purpose of the book of Revelation, you're going to be lost from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, through, through the entire book. You'll be lost. You have to know the purpose. And the purpose of the book of Revelation is the purpose of the entire revelation of Scripture. It's the unveiling of who? Of Jesus Christ. Genesis to Revelation. The purpose of the entire uh, 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 divinely inspired word of God is to unveil, to uncover, to reveal Jesus Christ. Look at what the first verse of Revelation says. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. This is the point of the entire prophecy of this book. And if you lose track of that, if you lose track, All of this is the point to Christ. See Christ. See him in his majesty. See him in his glory. See him in his power. See him in his judgment. See him in his judgment. See him in the reality that he will judge one day. Judgment is coming. He is merciful and he is patient. He's abounding in steadfast love. But there will be a time where he will say mercy is no more. And judgment will come. And he will judge sinners. And he will give them the recompense for their deeds. And this is the revealing of Jesus Christ. We only sometimes like to hear the revealing of Jesus Christ in ways that are palatable, that we can swallow down easy. But the book of Revelation challenges all of that. And in this first section, we're going to see a revealing of Jesus Christ that is powerful, that is bold, that, that, that declares some wonderful truths for us to apply in our life. Just a little, just a little background Before we jump in, the Apostle John was the human author of this divinely inspired revelation, this divinely inspired revealing of Jesus. He was the author. And John was exiled when he wrote this to a prison colony off the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of modern Turkey. And it's believed to have been written around A.D. 65. A lot of debate about when it was written but it's believed to have been written around A.D. 65. And the context of of why John is there, John is exiled in a prison colony off the island of, uh, uh, on, on the island of Patmos because he's being persecuted for his faith. All the other apostles have been martyred for their faith at this point. John alone is left, and he is serving under hard labor on an island, a prison island like Alcatraz, right? He's serving in a, in a prison colony, and he gets this vision from the Lord. So you have to understand, this is the context of this revelation, that the church is scattered all over the Roman Empire. 
and they are in persecution. And the main leaders of the church have been, have been the, the main apostles and the ones who God used to found the church have been martyred for their faith. So this is a very beleaguered time, not only for the church as a whole, but for the apostle John. He is on an island, a prison colony by himself as a Christian. And he would have been no doubt discouraged. How, how, how would we respond? Sometimes I think we look at the Bible and we separate ourselves from it. And, and, and we, we, we have a hard time relating to what goes on there. But think about, think about what it would be like today if what the early church Christians experience becomes our experience. I believe one day that it will, unless the Lord comes sooner. The Lord tarries, I do believe that Christians in the modern age will experience what the first century Christians experienced. And so, but for us, because we, we in our lifetime, in the lifetime of our parents and our grandparents, we haven't seen the type of persecution that the early church has experienced or the type of persecution that goes on all around the world and other parts of this world. But think about how it would have been for John to be exiled in prison for his faith. Prison for my faith. Seems inconceivable in, in America, does it not? In prison for my faith? I can go to prison for murder. I can go to prison for robbery. I can go to prison for many other things, but against the law, persecuted for my faith, exiled for my faith? You know, when the rubber meets the road, that's when people realize whether they really do have faith or they do not. But here's John, exiled for his faith. John's suffering. And the Lord of the church, the Lord of the church, not the apostles that died, not John, but the Lord of the church breaks through into the prison of persecution and he wants to speak to John concerning his church. That's powerful. Exile John, persecuted for his faith. And God says, John, I want to talk to you about my church. I want to talk to you about my people. I have something that they need to hear, something that they need to know. There needs to be some correction. There needs to be some encouragement. There needs to be some shifting and some changing. There needs to be some adjustments that need to be made. And I have things I want them to hear. And we're going to unpack those next week. First letter, the church at Ephesus. We're going to go through each letter to the seven churches, literal churches that lived in Asia during that time. And some people believe that those letters don't really apply to us. Well, these are just letters that were written to those churches, or it's figurative, or it really, it, it, they weren't really real churches. But I believe that they were real churches, and I believe that this is why it applies to us. Look at Revelation 1.3. This brings everything written in this book, everything written in Revelation. It's not just for those who read it then, but it's for us now because of what Revelation 1.3 says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So when we read from, Genesis, from Revelation 1.1 all the way to the end of the book, that we will be blessed if we will hear it and we will, we will receive it. And so the blessing comes that we can apply it to our life. So yes, it was for little churches during that time, but it is for our church, that we would be admonished, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be faithful. Amen? So we will start the first letter next week to church at Ephesus. But right now, by way of introduction, before we get to the letters, we will look today at the vision of Christ. 
the Lord of the church before he begins to speak. So let's look. Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that you are, that are in Jesus. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. Why was he there? Why did I tell you that he was there? On the account of the word of God. That's why this is so sacred. I'm sorry. That's why this is so sacred. On the account of this book. And the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What day is that? Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, that those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I have a simple question from these verses this morning. Simple question I want to answer is this. What does the vision that John had of the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. What does the vision of what he saw speak to us today about Christ and his relationship to the church? What do we see in this vivid description? Eyes like fire, hair like wool, double-edged sword coming from his mouth. What is it that we see? Feet like burnished bronze. What do we learn about the Lord of the church in these verses? The first thing we learn is this, is that the Lord of the church stands with us. The Lord of the church stands with us. Look at, look at the verses there. Revelation 1, 12 through 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In the middle of the lampstands. What did the, John say that Jesus say the lampstands were? The lampstands were the seven churches that he's speaking to which it encompasses us as well, right? What, were, what, what, what What's the picture that he sees there? He sees one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of his churches. And this is the first reality of the vision of the, of the resurrected Lord, the resurrected, our resurrected Savior, is that the Lord of the church is with his church. He's with his church. He's with his church. And if you think about, think about the condition that John would have been in, Exiled on the island of Patmos. 
because of his faith on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Can you imagine what that vision would have felt like? He saw this vision of the resurrected Christ and he saw that there was the one like the son of man standing in the middle of the lampstand, standing in the middle of the church. How encouraging would that have been to John to know that God's not forsaken me. He's not forsaken me. I'm not alone. Christ has not forsaken me. Think about the reality of the scattered church as they would read this vision of Christ that John would give them and this letter would go out to them. The Lord is with us. He's not abandoned us. And some of you here today, you look around at the world today and and you could think, God, where are you? Look Look at the depravity of our world. Look at where it's going and where it's headed and the realities that we're facing. Look at the division in politics that has, is only getting worse by the day. Look at the division in the church that uh, is only getting worse. Look at, look, look at, all, look at the, the sin that is paraded all over. And we could think, God, where are you? We need a vision of our Lord to remind us that he is with us. He's in the midst of us. If we belong to Christ, we are his and his spirit is on the inside of us and he is always with us. Amen? Amen. This is a picture, this picture that John sees, the resurrected Savior in the midst of his church is a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made. Did you know that? It's a fulfillment. Look at Matthew 28. Jesus made a promise. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, what? I'm with you always. I'm in the middle of the lampstands. I'm in the middle of them. But who is he with? I believe he's with those who go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you. Believers, go. Believers go. Believers evangelize. Believers tell, other about, tell others about the, the beauty of Christ. And he is with us as we are on mission, as we are living lives of obedience, as we are obeying the Great Commission, as we are living lives of holiness and purity and pursuing a Christ-like life. We can know and we can know for sure that our Lord is with us. The God of the church, the Lord of the church is Christ and he is with us. I'm with you always, no matter what comes. What a great promise. No matter what comes, no matter the trials. What trials are you walking through right now? What are the trials you're facing? He's with you. No matter the persecution, in the middle of turmoil, in the middle of a life stained by the effects of sin, he is with us. And he says, I am with you always even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. This is the first thing that we see. And it reminds me of a promise that God gave Joshua as he set out to lead the nation of Israel. Look at Joshua 1. Moses is dead. Joshua is raised up. The Lord says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For what? The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with us. So I want to encourage you today. The Lord is with you. If you belong to him and you are his child, he is with you in whatever trial you're facing, in whatever circumstance you're walking through, in whatever despair, discouragement, depression, sickness, disease. He's with you. He's in the middle of the fire. He's a fourth man in the fire. The Lord of the church is with you. The Lord of the church is in the midst of our church, this church. He's with us. And what a, what a, what a beautiful, amazing reality for John to see. The first thing that he sees, he sees the golden lampstands. He sees that they represent the churches. And in the middle of them is the Lord of the church. Amen? In the midst of the lampstand stands one like the Son of Man. So where does hope for the future of our life come from? The Lord's with us. Where does hope for for the future of this church come from? The Lord is with us. In the middle of the lampstand stands one like the Son of Man. The Lord of the church stands with us. Secondly, the second part of the vision we see, look back at uh, uh, chapter 1 in Revelation, transitioning here. In the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man. He's with us. But he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So what do we see about the Lord of the church? Secondly, the Lord of the church intercedes for us. He's with us and he intercedes for us. Well, how, how do we see that he intercedes for us? Well, it, uh, this vision that the Lord gives John of, of, of Christ shows him clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So if you know your Old Testament Bible and you know how the priest in the Old Testament dressed, you would know that the priests wore long robes. They wore their robes and they wore a a golden sash across their chest, which was signifying that they were priests. Look at Exodus 28. This is the commandments for the priest. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, the priest, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. A priest in the Old Testament would wear this, and this is the picture that God is giving to John. He's saying, I'm with you. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the resurrected Christ is in the middle of his church and he's got, he's got clothes on. And it's the clothes of a priest. What would a priest do in, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system of the Jews? What would he do? A priest would be the one who would be the mediator. A priest is one who would be a go-between between the people and between God. And they would take the sacrifices and then they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would offer it up to the Lord as a burnt offering and a sacrifice for the remission and forgiveness of the sins of the nation of Israel. They would stand between the people and between God. That's what a priest does. He's a mediator. And so this picture of Christ is that he is our intercessor. He is our mediator. What does... What does the scripture say about Jesus? Look at Hebrews 8. Look at Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man, not the Old Testament tent of meeting and tabernacle, but as it is, Christ, 
has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And who is that? Christ Jesus. A mediator intercedes. And Christ is that high priest who is faithful. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. He is seated right now at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Praying for us. What great news would that be for John? Exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Exiled because of his faith. What great news is that for us living in the middle of a world stained by sin. In the middle of our own failures, our own weaknesses. In the middle of our trials and our pain. We can see a vision of the resurrected Christ telling us. He's with us. Nothing's outside of his realm of influence. He's in control. He's seated on the throne. He's with us. And he's praying for us. He's praying for us. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is praying when he's praying for us? When the scripture tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. You ever wonder what he prays? What does he pray for us? What does he pray for this church? For all churches, true churches who name the name of Christ. What does he pray? Does he pray for greater church influence? Does he pray for bigger churches, bigger buildings, bigger budgets? Is that what he's praying for? Certainly not. Well, we do want greater church influence in as much as we're naming the name of Christ and we're exalting Christ in all things. But I don't believe this is what he's praying for, that we would have bigger buildings, bigger churches, bigger budgets, more, more, more expansion of our kingdom. Right? That's not what he's praying for. Well, we can know what he prays for. Do you know how we can know what he prays for? Because we have a sample prayer in John 17. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17 prays to the Father. And we can know what it is that Jesus prays for us. We can get a picture of what he's praying, what's important to him to pray for us and to pray for our church. Look at John 17. I highlighted some verses here, just a few verses. For I have given them, this is Jesus praying to the Father. I've given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have come to to know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Isn't that interesting? I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. He's praying, God, keep them in your name, Father, which you've given me, that they may be one. He's praying that they may be one, even as we are one. And then he prays, and then I ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then he prays, sanctify them. In the truth, for your word is truth. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. So what is the Lord of the church praying for us right now? Do you want to know? Right here. He's praying, keep them in his name. He's praying that we would be one as Christ and the Father are one. He's praying that we would walk in unity. He's praying that we would be kept from the evil one. He's praying that we would not live lives of deception. We wouldn't be deceived by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's praying that we would be kept from the snare of the enemy. Have you been caught in the snare of the enemy? Have you been caught? 
Have you been deceived by his lies? Are you a believer here that's been deceived by the lies of the enemy? Jesus is praying that you would be kept from the evil one, kept from his lies. That you would know the truth, which leads to the next thing that he's praying for, that they would be sanctified in truth. And he says, your word is truth. He's praying for our church. He's praying for you that we would become more like Christ through the sanctifying work, through the washing of the water of the word of God. That we would become more like Christ through his word. And then he prays. He says, I want you to bring them to me that, that where I am they may be also. He's praying for our perseverance. He's praying that we wouldn't give up faith. He's praying that we wouldn't throw in the towel. He's praying, God, keep them. Keep them in me. Keep them in you that they may be with me. Isn't that powerful and beautiful? The Lord of the church, the one in the middle of the golden lampstands. He's with us. He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. And what a powerful vision for John to see and to understand. The Lord of the church is with us and praying for us. I can, and I do pray for you. I pray for you every day. I pray for you. I may not know every single circumstance that you walk in. I may not know the marriage struggle that you're walking through. I may not know the sickness that you're personally dealing with. I may not know the financial struggle or you fill in the blank, whatever it is you're walking through. I may not know the details, but I pray for you. I pray for you. And if you write down your prayer request on that prayer wall, down the hallway leading to the coffee shop where it says prayer. Right, if you write that down, you put it there. We will pray for you by name on Tuesdays with our pastors. I pray for you by name when you write it down, but I pray for you as a whole every day. I pray for this church. Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for your church? Pray for your church. Pray for God's people that are represented here that we would be kept from the evil one. That we would be sanctified in truth that we would be unified in one, that there would be no discord or division among us. Pray for this church and pray that we would persevere, that we would endure. But you know, my prayers are great, right? Because God hears my prayers and your prayers are great because God hears your prayers. But you know whose prayers are greater than all? The Lord of the church who's praying. And when I don't know what to pray as I ought, Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself intercedes for me with groanings that are too great for words. When I have nothing else to pray and I have nothing else to say and I'm I'm at my end, I don't know what else to think or to pray or, or to comprehend. It's beyond my comprehension. The promise of our Lord, the promise of Scripture in Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself is interceding for me and for you with a deep groaning that cannot even be uttered. There's no words to even put to it. The Lord prays for us. Amen? What a picture. How much more powerful is it that the Lord of the church promises us and tells us that he's praying for us. Corporately and individually, he's praying for us. He sees, he knows. I remember a message that I preached a while back. Our God is a God who sees. Our God is a God who knows. Do you remember that? First Peter, he's a God who sees, he's a God who knows. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 there. He sees, he knows. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the Lord of the church stands in the midst of us. And he prays for us. And thirdly here this morning, 
What is the third thing we see? The Lord of the church judges and sanctifies us. It gets interesting here. Watch this. Revelation 1, 14 through 15. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's got the, the garment of a priest. He's an intercessor for his church. But it says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Wow. What a picture of Christ that John sees here. He's with us. He's praying for us. But he's also in our midst as a purifying fire. He's in our midst as a purifying fire. Eyes like flames of fire. The white hair like wool is a picture of his perfect holiness. Our God is holy. Perfectly holy. There's no sin and no stain of sin that is in God. God is not like man. He can't lie. He can't sin. There's no sin in God. He's perfectly holy and righteous, pure as white snow. The eyes like a flame of fire is a picture of the piercing and purifying gaze of the Lord into his church. And as we're going to walk through these letters to the seven churches, you're going to see the eyes of the, flame, of, of, of the Lord of the church like flames, eyes of fire piercing into the, the church. And we're going to see some rebuke that's going to come. We're going to see some rebuke to churches because they've been compromising and going directions they should not go in. Adopting false doctrine and false teaching that is deadly to the church. Sexual immorality and sin amongst them. And the the piercing gaze of the fire in the eyes of the Lord of the church pierces into the church. And is going to pierce into these letters and it will pierce into our heart over the next seven weeks. This is our Lord. Hair like white wool, perfectly holy, eyes like fire, feet like bronze is a picture we see in Revelation, throughout Revelation that symbolizes judgment. This isn't, this isn't a picture of the Lord in the midst of the world. We think, yeah, Lord, in the midst of the world, you need eyes of fire and you need feet of judgment like burnished bronze. Yes, Lord, judge them. Let your eyes of fire pierce down into their lives because they are guilty. But the Lord in the church stands in the midst of his church and he brings judgment and he brings precision And it brings truth. And the voice like the roar of many waters is a picture of the powerful authority of God's word. Hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like bronze. The word of God like the roar of many waters. And each of these descriptions work together to show us that the Lord of the church who is with us and who prays for us is also bringing judgment and sanctification to his people. What do we read in 1 Peter 4 before you think God doesn't judge his church? What do we read in 1 Peter 4? When we did the series last. For it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I want to make clear the judgment's not condemnation. It's not condemnation. What does the Bible say in Romans? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? But the judgment is that he knows and he sees and he wants purity for his church. He wants holiness for his church. He wants his children to be sanctified and to walk in truth. And he comes in and brings judgment into the church. And you will see it as we walk through these seven letters. 
to the seven churches. And by God's grace, we will see it in our lives. By God's grace, we will surrender to the eyes that are like flames of fire. It's not condemnation. This is a judgment. This judgment is a purging, or you could call it a chastening, and a purifying work of Christ for the bride that he loves. For the bride that he loves. Hebrews 12 tells this, tells us this. If we belong to him, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline, the eyes of fire, right? The discipline, the judgment of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. You've been spanked by the Lord lately? It is for discipline you, you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. You're a son. He's going to discipline you. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. So a proof that you belong to Christ is that you get a spanking every now and then. A proof you belong to Christ is he takes you to the woodshed of his word. And, and you open it up and you read it and he disciplines you and he says, son, daughter, no. No, this is not right. Your life is not lining up with your testimony and your confession. Eyes like flame of fire. The word of God is like a rushing roar of water. It's loud. It pierces. What, would, what if I took your kid? What if I took your kid and I disciplined them without your permission? You know, you walk in and I'm spanking your kid. <laughs> you didn't even talk to me about that. You would be like, some of you would be like, All right, they probably need it. But, but some of you would be like, what are you doing? That is not your kid. That can never be said of God with us. We're all his kids. If we belong to Christ and we are his, we are his children. And we must all submit to his discipline. And you know what the goal is? So we will become like Christ. All of this for us is because we know that the Lord is working to sanctify us so, so as to conform us into the image of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we become sanctified into the image of God? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord who sanctifies us through his word, who disciplines us through his word, chastises us, rebukes us. And it's, a good, it, it's good, right? For a little while, it hurts. But in the end, it produces fruit in our life. Do you believe that? May we submit to the eyes that are like fire, that purify. May we submit to the discipline of our Lord and may we submit to his word that is like the sound of rushing waters that roars in our souls. So what do we see so far? The Lord of the church is with us. He prays for us. He's our high priest. He intercedes for us. The Lord of the church judges and sanctifies us. And lastly this morning, the Lord of the church protects us. I love this. This is so good. Listen to this. 
Revelation 1.16, here's another part of the vision. In his right hand, the Lord of the church who is standing in the midst of the churches, who is interceding as the great high priest, who is judging and, and disciplining his church. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Wow, what a picture. What a picture. In his right hand, seven stars. From his mouth, a double-edged sword. So what are the seven stars in his right hand? Did you, do you remember when we, when we read it? Verse 20, Revelation 1 tells us, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what does it mean that the seven stars in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches? Well, you have to understand what the word angel means. The word angel means messenger. So it's not, he's not saying that these are little, that these are little angels, celestial beings that God created, but these are the messengers of the seven churches. So who are the messengers of the seven churches? Who are the messengers of the churches? The messengers are the pastors are the elders. So the seven stars equal the messengers, the elders of each church, the pastor, the teachers of each church. And what's interesting is that whenever you go, when we're going to read through every letter of these seven letters to these churches, it is addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, meaning to those who are responsible to take the word and to give it to the people. I've got a letter. I've got a word. Here's the messenger. Give it to the people. So who does that in the body of Christ? Who has God commissioned in the church? Elders, pastors. This is a picture of the responsibility that the elders and the pastors of the church have in delivering the word of God to God's people. And this is how the Lord of the church protects us. Look what Ephesians 4 says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The Lord of the church gives the word of God to the elders of the church to preach the word so that we would not become children, stay as children. A child can be deceived easily. Can't a child be deceived easily? I I, I shouldn't say say I deceive my kids often. Um, I strategically move information around. (laughs) And parents, you are, I'm not the only one. Am I not? I need the eyes of fire <laughs> into my heart, <laughs> right? But kids can be, you can, get the, you can convince them. I remember, I don't know who it was that told me this. Somebody in the church uh, deceived their kids on a regular basis and told them that, that, that Sam's uh, club was Disney World. <laughs> We're going to Disney World today. So now when they got older and they asked, did you ever go to Disney World? Yeah, we did. But parents, it can only last so long, Right? I didn't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, children can be deceived. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Brunny. <laughs> God gives the word of God 
to the shepherds of the church so that we aren't like children who can be told that Sam's Club is Disney World, so that we can be protected from the yahoos on the Internet that will deceive you about truth. We need protection. And God has given me and the other elders of this church as a gift to you so that we can read the Scripture, explain the Scripture, and apply the Scripture to your life so that you can be protected and you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as it says in Ephesians 4. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, what happens when the church is working properly, the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, which it is equipped When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's one of the great markers of a church that's mature. It's a church that loves. A church that loves one another. It's a church that loves one another. We build each other up in love. We disagree. We don't see things eye to eye. We have differences of opinions. We have ideas that don't line up with each other. And we can disagree, but when we have the word of God at work in our life through the shepherds that God has given us, and we are protected through that teaching, then God matures us to mature manhood. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We are built together in love, and we are one as Jesus prayed for in John 17. And we go and make disciples of all nations. This is the beauty of the church. This is what God has established. The double-edged sword represents from his mouth, it represents the double-edged sword of the word of God. The word's alive, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword as it says in Hebrews. The sword of the spirit is the word of God, it says in Ephesians 6. So here's the picture. The Lord of the church protects his people by entrusting the sword of the word into the hands and mouths of his shepherds for the protecting and the building up of the body. What a vision. What a vision. That John would have. Exiled. Because of the word of God. Persecuted. All alone. The last apostle. He's going to eventually be boiled in oil. For his faith. Last one. Church scattered. But he has a vision. I'm with you. I'm in the midst of you. I'm your high priest. I'm praying for you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to help you to grow. And I'm going to protect you. The church is not going to die. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you shepherds that will speak the truth of God's word to you. And you will grow in maturity. And you will become one. And the gospel will spread everywhere. And what happened? What happened? It's exactly what happened. The gospel could not be stopped. Can you imagine this vision going out to the scattered churches? Beleaguered and hopeless. But they rose up and they kept preaching the gospel and they kept preaching the gospel and it traveled down generation after generation to Homa, Louisiana, to Thibodeau, to Shriver, to Dulac, to Berg, to Cocodrie, to wherever you live, wherever you're from. It came to your home. It came to your house. It came to your life, to your family, to your grandparents, to your great-grandparents. It came down to you and you placed faith in Christ because of a vision of the Lord of the church. And my brothers and sisters, we need that same vision today, right now. We need to know and to understand the gospel will not be stopped. The gospel will not be hindered. 
when men and women unify together and work together and lean on the encouraging vision of the Lord of the church. And before we dive into the details of these letters and we submit to what the Lord wants to do in our lives individually and corporately, may we rest in this reality that this is God's church. He is the Lord of this church and all churches that are true Bible-believing Jesus churches. He's the Lord of those churches. And he is in control. Do you believe it? The Lord of the church is with us. What do we learn? He's with us. He prays for us. He disciplines us. And he protects us. And the Lord gives another promise. He gives us another promise. This is one of my favorite promises. We'll end with this promise from our Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And here's the promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this truth that is so relevant to us in our lives. That no matter where we are, what we're walking through, personally and corporately, Lord, we know that you are with us that you are praying for us, that you are disciplining us, that you are protecting us. And God, I pray that this revelation that John saw, that we see, that we get to be blessed in seeing, I pray that it would change our perspective. And God, that we would desire to be all that you've called us to be. And I pray, God, as we go through the next seven weeks and we look at these seven letters to these seven churches, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to our church and that we would submit to it and we would change, we would repent and we would change and we would be who you have called us to be. God, I pray a blessing over your people here today. Strengthen us in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 I love you. See you next week.